tonight. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Dr. Paul Nathanson, intersexual dialogue researcher at McGill University and author of Spreading Misandry, the Teaching of Contempt for Men in Public Culture. Thanks to the Me Too and Time's Up movements, the field of masculinity studies has gained newfound exposure. Dr. Paul Nathanson, religious studies researcher at McGill University, uses an extensive appendix of anti-male bias in film, television, and even greeting cards to show that in the past 10 years, the pendulum has swung too far, arguing that we now live in an atmosphere that discriminates against men. Dr. Nathanson emphasizes the need to understand a profound problem that our society must face, the increasing ability of boys and men to create a healthy collective identity. Welcome to the show, Dr. Nathanson. Well, nice to have you here today. Thank you. So you're, uh, you've, I guess, uh, established in the past 10 years that we have created this anti-male bias as opposed to what I always think of. We have this anti-female bias, but you're saying maybe not so, but men also are suffering from this kind of bias. So talk to us. What do you mean by that, an anti-male bias. bias. What have we done? Well, first of all, it's not the last 10 years. I would say this has been going on for about half a century with increasing strength. Um, And also, um, you know, the fact that society um, in some ways is hostile to men does not mean that it's not also hostile in other ways to women. I mean, those two things can coexist. Um, well, what I mean is simply that it's becoming very hard for boys and men to establish a healthy identity. And by that, I mean um, the ability to uh, have at least one function that is both that is distinctive. In other words, other people don't do it, therefore it can be the basis of an identity. Um, something that is also necessary, not something trivial, and finally, something that is publicly valued. Now, the problem that exists for boys and men today is something that has been building for at least uh, 12,000 years (laughs) since the industrial, since the agricultural revolution, so it's not a new thing. Um, But in the past 40 or 50 years, it's been greatly exacerbated um, as part of the fallout, whether intentional or unintentional, of various women's movements. Not egalitarian feminism, which is about equality, and nobody has a problem with that, but what I call ideological feminism, which is a worldview that um, polarizes the world and all of history so that men and women are eternal enemies, um, men being the cause of every problem that women encounter. Um, now, that, that is something that has emerged really since the 1970s and 80s. Um, and it's become increasingly, uh, I would say, toxic. 
Um, but well, was, I just want to stop you for a second because I want to put that in a context for like, I mean, you're a researcher, uh, an academic, a PhD, like just for, uh, you know, the lay person, what does that actually mean? I, I mean, I would say that, and just sort of describing myself as a feminist, but a feminist who's grown up in a house household with two brothers, I have three sons and three grandsons. So, um, I, I, I find this topic really interesting. Uh, from that perspective, but okay, so we're talking about, I've always thought of, let's say, the United States as a patriarchal society in the sense that maybe you touched on that. I mean, that women weren't allowed to vote, for instance, until uh, 1923, 1924, or own property, uh, or or actually uh, have access to certain jobs or professions or go to, weren't allowed into medical schools or or, or uh, legal, you know, get a, a law degree. So how, I guess I'm asking, how does that fit into, you know, that what I would say would be an anti-female bias, uh, where well, men have had a lot more opportunities. You ought to put that in a, in a context. Yeah. Um, the fact is that most men could not vote until the early 20th century. Um, most men were excluded from all sorts of activities, not so much because of hatred, but because society had just evolved in ways that made it more expedient for men to do some things and women to do other things. Um, So, uh, first of all, I would question the idea that these inequalities are caused by hatred. Sometimes they might be, but not necessarily. And secondly, I would just say that they apply to many, many men also. Uh, Men, to vote in the 19th century, you had to... Um, you had to be, you had to own property. You had to um, be able to read and write. Uh, you know, you couldn't be black. You had to be white. Uh, so there were also, you know, it's just, uh, it's much more complicated than simply saying men hated women, therefore they prevented them from doing whatever they wanted. Yeah, I, I don't know if that's what I was saying. Yeah, that you. That, so there, I guess there are so many levels to this, right? It's like, um, I mean, there's the 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 sort of, you know, like institutionalized racism. There has been a kind of an institutionalized. I don't know what you would call it, um, against women having certain um, access to, as I said before, to jobs, to certain opportunities. But you're saying certain men also didn't have that. But overall, I think that yes, you're right. It was. Uh, white men who own property, who are the ones who are at the top of the, la- you know, top of, who were able to have access to all of these things. But um, and then there were other things, for example, that people seldom talk about. But um, one thing that was closed to women, which I think benefited women, and that was military conscription. Yeah, that's you know, true. That, yeah. Unless you consider being required by the law to risk your life in battle, unless you consider that an advantage, um, then I'd say that was a pretty great disadvantage that men had. Well, do you think that emerged because women give birth to have babies and like you need to, like somebody has to be producing these babies and (laughs) so they can't really be on the battlefield for that, um, that that would be one of the issues, I mean, from a practical point of view, a societal point of view? Not really. Um, there have been countries that have uh, used women in battle. Uh, and, 
you know, if women as individuals are pregnant, um, then you exempt them or you uh, defer um, service, just as you exempt men who are not physically able to do the the, the to meet the stand the military standards. Um, that's as individuals, but in this case, you see, it wasn't people didn't talk about individual men or women. They talked about men and women as classes. Well, let's talk about the anti-discrimination bias that we have today that you say is, I don't know if you think it's getting increasingly worse, um, uh, and specifically for young men. What are we doing to these young men in terms of the uh, the bias against them? Well, the most obvious example at the moment, um, certainly, um, would be the... Some of the some of the fallout from the Me Too movement. Now, the Me Too movement does provide um, women with um, a therapeutic um, venue. They can talk about things that once they didn't talk about, um, and they can deal with a real problem. Sexual harassment is a problem, and it should be dealt with. The problem is that um, it involves um, undermining uh, the rule of law, which is to say the presumption of innocence and the provision of due process. So in that sense, the Me Too movement has has a negative side, Um, And that, in turn, brings up the whole question of what sexual harassment is. Um, You know, I would define sexual harassment as something that involves intimidation. Um, If your job depends on something and you're told uh, that you'll be fired if you don't uh, have sex with somebody, that's intimidation. And that's, that's bad, very bad. But if it involves telling a lewd joke or patting somebody on the, on the shoulder or saying something that might be possibly offensive. Now, if you include everything like that into the word sexual harassment, then I think you're basically calling into question the legitimacy of male sexuality because male sexuality does, does push men to uh, not to rape, not even to harass, but to make overtures to women. It does. That's the way male sexuality works. And if that is considered evil, then we've got a problem. Yeah, I would agree with you there. I, I don't. I I I totally dis. I, I do agree with you, and I think that's going to be one of the issues. I think that. Uh, I think that that, and I think that that's maybe just you know from the Me Too movement has just is being discussed because women who have been harassed and the example you gave, like you you can't have this job or this promotion unless you have sex with me, says a a male boss. uh, It kind of, I would say that it kind of makes that, if you put that in the same category as somebody putting their arm on your shoulder or telling a joke. It trivial. Yes, that's the word. It and not only that, but it, it, yeah. it also infantilizes women. Yeah. No, I would agree with that. But I, I think that's being addressed. I mean, it, it seems to me, I mean, as this thing, as, as the Me Too movement evolves, I mean, at first they have to sort of come, I mean, it's, I think to me, it's very important to come out and to 
finally be able to say something as a uh, as, as a baby boomer woman, I I can name two major Me Too events in my life, and I don't have a friend, a girlfriend, a colleague who hasn't had the same thing, who's never really said anything about it, about the and. Um, I mean, if, and that's that's a lot. I mean, that's just in my scope or in my realm. But but um, I, I really, sort of repeating that. Um, each one of us seems to have, and and that's not putting somebody telling lewd jokes or, uh, you know, trying to even trying to pick you up at a bar or those kinds of things or buying you a drink or whatever it is. But no, I'm talking about really the kinds of examples. The example that you just gave. Yes. And, um, of course, I could say the same thing, really, except that it wouldn't be sexual harassment because I haven't, um, I haven't worked for enough women who have a great deal of power, but I have worked for some women who have had a great deal of power, and I have been abused by them, not in, not in overtly sexual ways, but in this way that I call identity harassment. Um, I've been expected to take all sorts of humiliating ridicule and shame and not say anything um, because, well, frankly, my job depended on being compliant. That's what job, that's what goes with the territory of working for somebody. Um, so, um, you know, I think that there's a, there's a whole lot of stuff um, that men are not saying um, Women are coming out of the closet and saying things they want to say, but men are still locked in that closet. So How many men I... want to admit that they have been harassed by a woman, or by anyone for that matter? And don't forget that men like Harvey Weinstein was known not only for his attitudes to women, he was also known for punching men. Yeah, well, maybe Harvey Weinstein is in a category by himself, but I mean... Uh, well, not I mean, really. I mean, I think that abusive people are abusive, period. And uh, their, their abuse might not take the same form in every case, but they basically do thrive on intimidating other people. Yeah, that I wouldn't. That that may be true, but I think that, however, when it comes to women, for whatever the reasons, they have tended to be more compliant or afraid to speak out. I mean, I just as as a group, as and also, of course, women. There aren't a lot of women who are in the kinds of positions that Harvey Weinstein are in. I mean, there aren't you know, CEOs of companies, there aren't many, or who sit on some of these boards, et cetera. So they, you know, who Well, they're increasing very quickly. Yeah. And in fact, we have, you know, 60% of undergrads and slightly fewer, maybe 55 to 60% of graduate students in universities um, are women. And so uh, these are the people who are going to get the big jobs in the future. Men have a, rate, a much higher rate of dropping out of school, uh, of not even applying to, to colleges, of committing suicide. Um, so there's a, there's a, we're building a kind of underclass, and uh, the next generation is going to look quite different from this one. Not necessarily better, however. 
When you say it's going to look different, and uh, that was my next question, because you're at a university, you're at a top university, you're at McGill University, you see these students, the millennials, that generation, and even younger, I guess. Uh, what is the response to what you, I mean, I assume you're, you, obviously you're, you you have an open dialogue with these 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 young people, what's their response, the men and the women, to what you're saying, that we're teaching this contempt for men in, in, in our public culture? Well, I think that many of the young women that I talk to um, will say, um, yes, um, there's, there's been a lot of um, misandry, male bashing, whatever you want to call it, but they add... I'm not one of those. I'm an egalitarian. I believe in equality forever. So, you know, they, um, I don't doubt that they're speaking the truth. I'm just saying that they're trying to have their cake and eat it too. They want to be, um, they want to be feminist, but they also want to, um, condone the activity or the, the speech of feminists who are not egalitarian, but ideological. Um, so, there's that conflict that I see between in the minds of many young women. As for the boys, the young men, um, the pattern is uh, is kind of different. They appear um, very passive. They're, they don't know. They haven't taken women's studies one on one. They're not articulate. They're not. They don't know the arguments that, that underlie these public conflicts. Um, they're, uh, as I say, they're passive, um, and they're the kind of people who just give up and drop out. That, and then you're talking about at, at, at McGill, at your university? They're the, yeah. Yeah. So I guess that really says something if you're talking they about... They don't participate in class. They don't have ambition. They spend their time gaming, their spare time. Um, or getting drunk. Uh, so, uh, I mean, there's a lot of very unhelpful stuff going on for them. Um, and many of them, frankly, although they don't say this explicitly, but many of them are simply afraid of women at this point. They don't want anything to do with women. God forbid you should say something or do something, and then the next day they're, you know, your, your life is ruined. So, so that's what's going on with them. Uh, that was something that I, I wasn't aware of. I notice a, a lot of these, and, and maybe it's, a, it's sort of the Gen Xs, the ones who are like the young men and young women who are having families, and I notice the differences. And this is a positive way. I, I see that the the young men take on more responsibilities for taking care of children, for taking care of babies, for even being stay-at-home dads, um, and that 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 and that women perhaps are the ones who. You know, they're the ones who I can name several instances of colleagues who um, they make more money than their spouses. So they're the ones who go back to work. Uh, You know, that's the most practical thing to do. So I see those kinds of changes, which is a positive thing. Yes. Since you mentioned um, childcare, I should just add here that the one, the one thing, the one function that men have always had, among others, um, that is distinctive, necessary, and was publicly valued, was fatherhood. But that is changing, because now 
fatherhood, uh, even as you've just described it, tends to be defined as second motherhood or assistant motherhood. Um, and I think that we've lost the sense that fatherhood has a distinctive function in the family. It's not the same as motherhood. It's different, but it's also necessary. Um, and it doesn't come in infancy when, you know, children are are literally feeding at the breast. I mean, that's not where fatherhood comes in. Fatherhood comes in later in the life cycle when children are growing up, moving out into the larger world, and what they need is not more unconditional love, which they always get from their mothers, but the ability to earn respect from other people. And somehow these are things that fathers have done in the past that are either not being done. I mean, how many, you know, there are so many fatherless children. Um, and one of the, one of the few factors that links about 70% of the, of the high school shooters is that they don't have fathers. So, um, you know, we haven't even begun to, um, really examine or study the role of fathers. We just assume that mothers and fathers are interchangeable and you need somebody to help around the house and do the diapers. But what we really need is fathers. And um, we haven't really thought about that enough. So that's one major problem in itself. Well, maybe we're constantly redefining the definition of motherhood as well, motherhood and fatherhood as society changes. I mean, with the, so that, I think both sexes are defining themselves differently in terms of what their roles are within the family. The family has always changed, hasn't it? I mean, you talk about, let's say, and you were talking about centuries of of men being, uh, you know, uh, 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 I guess there's been a contempt for men over centuries, not just in the past 10 years. But if you think about the changes, like in the 1800s, families were lived in small, lived in the same community all their lives. There was a lot of support from family members to to take care of the, the children. Uh, and then it was post-World War II where the expectation, it's only been since post-World War II, at least here in this country in the United States, where one woman was expected to stay home alone by herself without any kind of support and take care of the family while her husband went out and went to work. Well, that's also now beginning to change. Um because the culture has changed, the opportunities for job has changed, the internet has has uh, changed everything. So, doesn't the the definition of um, family and the definition of the role of mother and father isn't that constantly changing? Yes, I mean, it's constantly we don't want to go changing, back to father knows but, best. But it's constantly changing. But not everything changes. Uh, maybe the content of what needs to be done on a day-to-day basis changes, but the need for both a mother and a father, I don't think that has changed. Um, now, maybe the so, need, but the role is different. I mean, uh, I don't know that you. There are there are children who are raised by grandmothers or grandparents who doing. I mean, really, not just, I mean, they're, they they do really well or are raised by, I mean, you know, you have two mothers or two fathers, you know, in terms of gender and, um, 
you know, there are lots of other, I guess, things that come into play rather than you got a mother and a father. I mean, you can have an abusive mother and abusive father, but you got a mother and a father. Well, that's not a good situation. It's no, not just, but yeah. these, but the statistics do show that children of divorce certainly, and also children without fathers, are at risk of almost every conceivable kind of problem whether it has to do with education or with work or with antisocial behavior. Um, this is not some secret that I discovered. This is pretty well known. So but isn't I think that, that also related to economics? I mean, if you have to, you have to factor that in as well, because very often, let's yes. say, children of divorce and but single it's not mothers. Only, but it's not yeah. only that. It's not only poverty. That's that's been, for the past few years, that's been a convenient excuse for saying that, well, you know, as long as there's enough uh, money, uh, then children will do well. If they have a, if they have a loving parent uh, or two loving parents, but it's actually more complicated than that. There's more, it's more than just that. Uh, children from very wealthy families. I mean, we just had this, this case of this guy who was released from prison a few days ago, the guy who pleaded guilty, no, pleaded not guilty of, I think it was murder, by virtue of the fact that he was so rich that he was um, unable to distinguish between good and evil and didn't know what he was doing. Um, they called it affluenza. Um, now, so he, here's somebody who came from a rich family who was nevertheless um, unable to function effectively in, or healthily in society. So it's not just a matter of money. I don't agree with that. Well, I'm not saying it's just a matter of money. I'm saying that there are so f- many factors that come into play in terms of what there provides- are. Yeah, a good family. Or There uh, are, yes. It is yeah. complicated, and I, I yeah. agree with you. But I, I think that if you ask any social scientist, um, uh, is it, do the statistics indicate that not having a father um, affects the children? I think they will all say that it does affect children. Well, I wouldn't disagree with that. I mean, I think it does, but, you know, it's sort of like, you know, how it affects them. And, and uh, we're talking about a lot of complex issues, you know, um, but. Well, yeah. one thing that, that one thing that is new, we've always had fatherless or motherless children because people die, people get divorced, people abandon families. So that's not new. But what is new is when you have so many of these people that it's no longer the exception um, that people, that societies or communities can handle in various ways. When it becomes something approaching the norm, then the phenomenon itself becomes different. That's a whole other topic. We have like a minute left. We have a lot more to talk about, but I guess I should recommend people should read your research, Spreading Misandry, the Teaching of Contempt for Men in Public Culture, because I, I just want to make sure that uh, you, you know uh, listeners can sort of continue. Well, that's only one of four books on the subject of misandry. They're all on Amazon. Okay, Amazon.com. I mean, you can buy them on Amazon and bookstores everywhere, but also just give us a, a website that we can go to, too, so we can access your research and all the books that you have written on this topic. 
I don't have a website, but the oh. books are all <clears throat> they're all on Amazon. Just look up my name. Okay, so it's Dr. Paul Nathanson. And by the and, way, my colleague, my co-author, yeah. mm-hmm. um, is a woman named Catherine Young. And so we've had a lot of really, really good discussions about these things from the points of view of both men and women. And in fact, our ultimate goal um, is something that we call intersexual dialogue. And dialogue is a kind of conversation that is based on empathy, not competition. And the assumption is always that both voices have something vital to contribute and that one does not have to defeat the other. That's great. That, that's, that's, a, that's a good uh, thought to end the interview on because I do, I think that's, uh, we'll be looking for your dialogue actually between the two of you. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you. I'm Catherine Zock, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zock Show. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for You with Arvind Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is New York Times bestselling author, Dr. Rick Hansen, author of Resilient, How to Grow an Unshakable Core of Calm, Strength, and Happiness. 
In today's culture, with a seemingly high amount of trauma and chaos at every turn, it's crucial to use mental resources such as grit, gratitude, compassion, and motivation to manage hardship and push through challenges in the pursuit of opportunities. Psychologist Dr. Rick Hansen presents a scientifically grounded program for developing 12 inner strengths that foster lasting happiness in a changing world. Dr. Hansen is featured on BBC, CBS, and NPR. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Dr. Hansen. Can I call you Rick? Please do. Otherwise, okay. I'll need to call you Ms. Zox or something. <laughs> right. so thank you. Good morning. It's truly an oh, honor to be here. It's great to have you. All right. I, you know, resiliency is so, so important. Um, I'm, I'm really glad you're, because I think that's really the key. I, there are two things I think that help us to get along in the world, resiliency and, and boundaries. And if we can sort of be mm. able to accomplish both of those, we're doing really well. So, but we're going to talk about resiliency today. What does that mean? And how does that help us to sort of be able to maintain our calm, be strong, and, and be happy. Right. Well, as, as you know, resilience is the capability inside people to recover from adversity, including trauma, and more generally, to keep pushing forward even in the face of challenges. And um, challenges include very everyday matters like you know racing to a meeting in traffic or trying to get a toddler into a car seat, one of the most stressful things known to, you know, to humankind. So we need resilience to be able to deal with that or work, deal with the chronic pain in our back. If we're going to have ongoing well-being in a changing and challenging world, we need to be resilient. We need to have this capability inside, not just to survive the worst day of our life, but to thrive every day of our life. So well-being comes from resilience, and what does resilience come from? Resilience comes from um, inner resources, psychological resources of various kinds, secure attachment, executive functions, positive emotions, grit, gratitude, know-how, and so forth. So what the book's about is basically how to grow that resilient core of well-being inside yourself so that when the challenges of life land, you feel already resourced inside, from the inside out, already kind of filled up rather than, as many people feel these days, as you know, running on empty. I was going to say, many people do feel like they're running on empty. How do you think, as a society, are are we not doing well at being resistant, being resistant, being resilient? Um, And if we're not, why aren't we? I mean, have we been more resilient in the past, and then we are sort of emerging for some reason culturally to not being as resilient as we used to be? you know, I, I think about I think that's parents. That's a really deep question. Yeah. I don't. It's interesting. Like there are longi- there are studies, uh, sort of each year of happiness, uh, or empathy, for example. And um, I'm not aware of any kind of comparative study of say resilience in the 1950s uh, when I was a little kid uh, compared with today. My impression is that uh, while on the one hand, uh, speaking of America, for example. The economy is going relatively well. Um, many indicators of stress or um, problems for people, adversity, are, are going down. They're offset, of course, by many ongoing issues. And yet, as you say, uh, people report very generally the experience of being stressed and anxious and uneasy. And I suspect there's a element to that that has to do with kind of a deep uneasiness in us as social mammals that our kind of politics 
seems so fractured and not working and and unreliable. So there's a, there's this uneasy sense of uh, I think in many people that there's a kind of slow motion train wreck you know approaching us. Who knows? But meanwhile, um, I think the opportunity for people is to see the world as it is and, in a sense, tap into the um, kind of old-fashioned values of self-reliance. And so you're I've been talking, a long time. Well, you talk about Please. 12 inner strengths that we need to tackle some. Well, you mentioned politics, and I have a whole list here of the things that you can you relate doing this to, politics, parenting, financial yeah. security. We can go down the mm-hmm. list, but... Okay, so let's apply, like, what are those 12 inner strengths? What do we need to be resilient? And then applying it to, let's take politics, because I... Because uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's on many people's minds. Yeah. Um, well, so the, uh, the, the the 12 strengths that I focus, so I'll, I'll create a framework here. So uh, resilience is a matter of meeting our needs. And there's a traditional idea uh, in psychology about meeting needs, and I'm returning to it here. So what are our needs? We have three fundamental needs for safety, satisfaction, and connection. Those are umbrella terms, uh, and those uh, needs are met by avoiding harms for safety, approaching rewards for satisfaction, and attaching to others for connection. These are familiar ideas, and uh, the, the way in which we meet these needs is related to the three-stage evolution of the brain. So we have the reptilian brainstem, mammalian subcortex, primate human neocortex sitting on top. In effect, a little inner lizard, mouse and monkey inside us all. So to identify the strengths that we need, it's useful to do so in terms of this framework of what helps us be safe, what helps us deal with fear and anger and helplessness, what helps us deal with frustration, disappointment, loss, boredom in terms of satisfaction and and addiction, and also what helps us deal with um, attachment issues, interpersonal conflicts, shame, the social emotions, embarrassment, feelings of inadequacy in terms of connection. So that gives us a structure from the get-go. And what I do is basically apply four fundamental ways to have well-being to those three needs. So the four ways are to recognize what's happening around you and in you. Second, to resource yourself, to grow capabilities inside. Third, to regulate yourself. We have to manage our impulses and our intention and our emotions. And we also need to, fourth, relate to the world around us. So without getting too complicated, you combine those three needs with the four ways of managing our well-being. That identifies 12 fundamental strengths. And then in the book, they go in order, trying to deport people here. I'll just list them quickly. Uh, For me, the the journey begins with compassion, especially self-compassion. If a person's not on their own side, they're not really able to make use of um, their opportunities to develop themselves, which is what the book's about. And then following compassion comes mindfulness then learning, grit, gratitude, confidence, calm, motivation, and intimacy, and then finishing with the final three strengths, uh, courage, especially interpersonal courage, aspiration, and generosity. Uh, All the strengths work together, um, and uh, as a result of having them increasingly inside, speaking of politics, uh, what I observe when I look at history and the, the world today as people grow this unshakable core inside of calm strength, well-being, a loving heart, and a sense of worth, as they grow that inside, they're harder to manipulate with the ancient uh, methods of fear for safety, uh, greed uh, for satisfaction, and us-against-them conflicts. 
And my own hope long-term is that as more and more people develop that unshakable core, we're going to be able to swerve uh, toward, toward a softer landing in the 21st century than the one we're kind of headed toward. So how do we do this starting from, we have to start from the beginning. I think in the beginning of the interview, you said one of the most difficult things is strapping that toddler into his car seat. Okay, that may be mm-hmm. the beginning of teaching resilience because um, isn't that where we have to start? We have to start with our, our, our kids. Um, oh, you sure mean in terms of developing resilience in them? Yes, in terms of developing yeah. resilience. Oh, yeah. sure. I mean, we can, <clears throat> what's, um, so we can develop resilience in ourselves uh, as adults, let's say, and certainly we can promote it in our children. I mean, uh, is one way to do that that's very striking to me uh, is to really focus on the actual internalization of the beneficial experiences our kids are, actual, are having. In other words, it's not just enough that a child has a, uh, feels grateful for a moment or feels connected to a parent or feels a worth maybe at school while, let's say, that he or she is grappling with some kind of challenge like a learning issue, say, or dealing with some bossy or bullying other kids. Kids routinely and adults routinely have thoughts and feelings and sensations that are useful, but we don't learn from them. We don't um, turn them into any kind of lasting change in the brain. And that's where positive neuroplasticity comes in, which is a major focus of mine. How can we actually gain from the useful experiences we're having rather than having a flat learning curve over the course of a day or a week or a lifetime? So that's why I focus on the notion of taking in the good, um, in effect, drawing on what's known about the neuropsychology of emotional learning, social learning, the somatic learning, the learning we really care about. Um, how do we help good lessons land? You know, and ways to do that are very straightforward, but we rarely do them. It's basically to extend the experience. There's a famous saying, neurons that fire together wire together. So the longer they fire together, the more they tend to wire together. So helping a child, let's say, stay with the feeling for a breath or two in a row or longer. Second, feel it in the body. And third, focus on what's rewarding about it. All of those are well known in research to intensify or increase the transfer, the consolidation of the experience we're having into a lasting change in our nervous system. And then increasingly we move from states of compassion or happiness or self-worth or grit. We move from states of those to trait. And that's the key transition because then you carry that resource with you wherever you go. All right, give us a specific example, let's say, with a, a let's start with a yeah. kid, you know, a first grader, sure. and you talked about some of the, say, frustrations in school, perhaps, uh, some kid is, yeah. or it doesn't have to be a first grader, but getting bullying, of course, that's a good topic, and, mm-hmm. and, um, uh, and what happens, and how do you handle it, given, um, given the description that you just gave us, like, how does that real, how does that work for the, the parent, the kid, the child? Oh, 100%. Yeah, exactly. And and I've worked with a lot of children, and my wife and I have raised two, and they're now uh, adults, uh, 30 and 27. So let's see, if a child, let's say, is grappling with bullying in school, so you think one way to go into this is just think simply, what kind of needs are being challenged? Well, it's a, it's a combination. <laughs> it's a two-for-one punch. Basically, social needs and safety needs are being challenged right there. So focusing on, um, let's say, the um, safety needs, Uh, what a child could do is look for opportunities to have a sense of their own strength, um, that they're not being overwhelmed by something, picking something elsewhere, like let's say athletics 
or being det- a child being determined to finish a puzzle or a project or to complete something or to do something physical like um, you know lift a weight or help to build something. You know, in other words, right there are opportunities to have a sense of fortitude inside, which a child could then tap into and draw upon even when they've got to deal with the bully and the bully's bigger and there's no way they're going to fight the bully or beat the bully right there and frankly no adults are going to help them but uh, meanwhile if a child has that sense inside of hmm you know i'm still strong i'm still here i got to deal with you but um, there's a kind of a sense of capability and strength inside i can speak from experience here that makes all the difference in the world so if we're going to help that child, let's say, build up any particular resource, including thinking about social needs, a sense of worth, even if the bully's putting me down, uh, my family loves me, my friends love me, I am lovable in my core, I'm a decent human in my core, experienced, you know, developmentally appropriately, depending on the age of the child. If you want to grow that resource, any resource inside ourselves, including happiness itself, it's a two-stage process. There's no way around it. In the first stage, you experience what you want to grow inside. In the second stage, you help it sink in and become a lasting change inside your nervous system, bit by bit, synapse by synapse. So as a parent, what we might do with a child like that is draw the child's attention to those beneficial experiences that are not about resisting or lying about or looking through rose-colored glasses at the negative experiences, But when the child is having, indeed, those useful experiences that are authentic, um, you know, help the child just keep stay with them rather than get distracted and move on to the next thing. It doesn't need to be long. It's not like listening to Dad drone on for, you know, a while. It's really about for a breath or two or three, a dozen or two dozen seconds, kind of marinating in the experience, staying with the experience. And inherently, naturally, unavoidably, it leaves lasting residues inside the brain. Each little time a parent does that may not, you know, it's not going to save everything. But the gradual accumulation of, you know, half a dozen times a day, little moments, usually less than a minute long, in which a parent helps a child or a therapist helps a client during a session to actually internalize the resource experience is how to grow it inside. So the behavior actually, when you engage in that kind of be- that positive behavior, it actually changes the chemistry of your brain, you're saying, over time in a positive way. Yeah, yeah we learn. Um, we, can see all, we can see learning all around us. We can see learning inside us. Some of it's obvious. You know, we learn a, uh, a word or a phone number, uh, a password for, for an account. We learn some information. But along the way, I mean, as you all know, there's a lot of social, emotional learning that occurs, somatic learning. And healing is learning. Feeling um, the shift away from feeling immobilized and um, helpless and powerless, the shift away from that to a sense of capability, agency, feeling more and more like a hammer instead of a nail, that's learning too. And uh, that said, it's interesting to me. I'm, I mean, I'm in my 60s now, and I look back on a long career as a psychotherapist clinical psychologist, and before that, a lot of time in the human potential movement, and I've been a mindfulness teacher along the way. And when I look back at all that, it's striking to me as a person who's in the growth business, in a sense, or in a profession, alongside other related professions, you know, therapists, coaches, human resources trainers, mindfulness teachers, and so forth, um, even though we're in the growth business, we 
don't tend to systematically focus on what is the process of growth itself. How do we grow? And we almost never teach uh, clients or students or patients what they can do inside their own minds to grow as much as possible from the experiences they're having. And that's how to grow over time, this core of resilient well-being. Well, that's why your book is important. I, I, and also, I want to, because we don't have a lot of time left, but one of the other topics, because I think this is one that's, uh, at least um, as a social worker, I've done a lot of hospital social work, but how do we apply this to like health worries and issues? Because um, mm-hmm. I think that's, you know, that's a big topic well, today. Huge. Yeah. Oh, Let's yeah. Oh, no. Uh, you know, I, I have some of my own. And so um, the, you're exactly right. So there's a challenge. So let's say there's a health concern, a possibility, or maybe you're dealing with a reality. You've got an illness, you've got chronic pain, uh, you know, you're dealing with something. So there's a challenge. Then the coping question is, all right, darn, <laughs> and uh, what can I do to mobilize the world around me to help me? Okay, you know, do the best way I can. But in many people's lives, it's clear the cavalry is not coming. And they, they really have to reach down inside themselves. And what, what's there to, that you can draw upon as, as a trait, a uh, psychological resource of one kind or another? So let's say a person is worried about a health problem. Well, then I think immediately of well-known, studied resources for um, dealing with anxiety, uh, just the experience itself. There are other resources that would help a person cope more effectively and be more active and resourceful. But I'm going to just focus here on what would help with the anxiety, anxiety portion of it all. So, for example, knowing how to relax at will. That's a simple skill. Skills are inner resources. Many people are, are not very knowledgeable about how to simply, for example, extend the exhalation to relax at will. Or they know how to do it, but they don't tend to do it very often, so they haven't shifted um, their resting state um, into a more relaxed place. So a person could uh, deliberately call up the experience of calming in themselves through whatever means. That's the first step of learning. However you get there, now you have the experience of calming, let's say by you know exhaling slowly for a few breaths. And then once you have that experience, here's the question. Can you help it sink in to shift yourself into greater trait calm over time? So that would be one thing. Another for people, uh, because we're such social creatures, is to feel that others care about you and are there with you even if you're grappling with something intractable and inescapable. They're with you still. Uh, So there, a person could look for and have uh, various experiences of being cared about in different ways, even in imperfect relationships, and yet the caring is real, the, the liking, the love, the appreciation is real. And then once that experience is occurring in your mind, feeling cared about or connected uh, in one way or another, right there is an opportunity to turn on the inner recorder, you know, and the inner iPod, and then in the second necessary stage of learning, take a few breaths to stay with the experience, feel it in your body, focus on what's rewarding about it, and help it gradually sink into yourself. So then increasingly, one person is able to self-soothe and self-regulate. Well, the question is, and and I know... I'll have people asking me this, like, can you do that when you've, let's say, been diagnosed with a catastrophic illness, whether, you know, I mean, you have, when the doctor says you have cancer, you have breast cancer, you have colon cancer, does it, yeah, does it work? Okay, so to the point, I I think there are different ways to relate, obviously, to the mind, and, and the first most important one is to simply be able to be with what's there. 
And there are times when all you can do is just write it out. Uh, I can speak from some experience. You just have to feel it. But to be able to simply feel it and to endure, you need to have resources inside, like a sense of perspective. Uh, many people have drawn a, a sense, something that's religious as an internalized resource. That's very important for many people. Um, you know, and then over time, when the alarm bells stop ringing quite so loudly, you know, when a few days have passed or a few weeks and you're starting to kind of grapple with what am I going to do about this, um, every day there's an opportunity to develop in some way. Maybe a person is developing, um, inner, trying to, they're working on inner peace or they're developing, let's say, inside, um, you know, a sense that, hey, I really matter and I'm not going to let the healthcare system just kind of patronize me and push me around whatever it might be, and I don't want to be really clear here. I'm, nothing in what, what I'm saying is about denying what's bad, quote-unquote, or negative or harmful or trying to diminish it. It's actually based on a really hard-headed clarity that um, crud happens, you know, and yeah. we have to deal yeah. with it. And sometimes it it's, it's really based on accepting it, as I hearing you, like being able to... We have to face it, but then yeah, how yeah. do you cope? How do you cope? How mm-hmm. do you adapt? How do you deal? And to deal, to cope... Uh, we draw on the resources we have inside ourselves. That's that's what makes us self-reliant, or which is another word for resilient. And I'd like to ask you the personal question because you've you said yeah. a couple times, but we have two minutes left. I don't know if we can sure. do that. But like you said, you've had your own experience in having yeah. to grapple with some of the. Yeah, can you just sort of? Oh, very brief. brief well, briefly, I've, so I've I've had to grapple with uh, the long, slow um, fade out of both of my parents at different times due to chronic health issues. And then in my own case, I've had uh, twice a melanoma pulled out of my face, and um, it's a virulent skin cancer, as you know. So, uh, you know, every quarter I get checked, and so far so good. Uh, Sunscreen is my new friend. Uh, But, you know, there there were times when I didn't know what was going to happen, and I currently don't know what might come back. So that's just, that's a reality for me. So that and it's and I get you're practicing what you preach. It's worked for you. I mean, having to deal with trying these, to, you know, yeah, yeah, which is great. You know, it's funny. Uh, I'll maybe we'll finish on this note. You know, I've been in you know in humanistic psychology, positive psychology, psychology in general. There's sometimes this uh, notion that if you just do this practice, you'll be happy. Uh, great, but what about coping? Just like you're saying, what about how do we deal with these hard things? We need muscles inside. And I think it's important to think systematically about, okay, what we grow off stage is what we draw upon when the crud hits the fan. So how can we develop resources in ourselves to prepare for the challenges that will come? And also how can we develop resources in ourselves in the middle of the challenges we have? Well, we have to buy your book. if we do that, we have more and more insight (laughs) for other people too. As I said, we we have to buy your book, Resilient, How to Grow an Unshakable Core of Calm, Strength, and Happiness, Dr. Rick Hansen. Um, and I do recommend the book. So uh, you can buy it on Amazon, bookstores everywhere. Uh, and is there a website we can go to to find out sure, more about the book? Sure, people can go to my website, rickhanson.net. Tons and tons of freely offered resources for the general public as well as for professionals. Um, uh, rickhanson.net and you can learn more about the book there. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Great information. Oh, Catherine, thank you. You're a total pro. It's a pleasure to talk with you. (laughs) Thanks. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 
We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 